0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. I help oversee our teaching team and then do uh, what ends up being about 50% of the preaching on Sundays. And so I'm honored to have a chance to teach this morning. Before we get to our sermon for today, I wanted to give you a little bit of an update, something to celebrate. We had our final class of the fall Midtown class this past Sunday. And uh, Midtown class is where we cover some of our basic beliefs as a church, why we do the things that we do our practices, our philosophies of uh, of ministry. It's our process for membership because we want people to know what they're getting themselves into before they become members of our church. So we try to just say, here's all of it, everything we think and what we believe and good, bad, and ugly, here you go. And now you can decide if you wanna join and become a member. And uh, we had right at 75 people complete the Midtown class and are uh, now praying about whether or not to hop in with us as a church, and we actually had some pretty good age diversity in the class, which is an answer to prayer, Um, so we're thankful for that. We've been praying for years to get a little more diverse in age, and so all that is wonderful. Next step for those folks would be our life group class. We want to start with laying out uh, our whole church and what we are about as a a whole church, and then we get more specific about what we do and um, how we practice life groups and give some training and equipping for operating inside of groups, and so that's the next step, There, and uh, we're excited about those those folks joining us as members, and for any of you who have not gone through those two classes, those would be good next steps for you, and I would recommend those to you, and then uh, lastly, I just want to connect it to something. Thanks to those of you who give and help fund ministry in our church. We get to do things like host classes for 75 people. It takes money to print out booklets and buy coffee and snacks and amplify sound for a room of that size. And so thank you for those of you who give generously and support what we are all collectively trying to do as a church. We appreciate it and that money goes to good use in things like classes such as the Midtown class. So grateful for all that and excited to have some new folks around considering hopping in with us as members. We are studying the life of David and we're about midway through And we will be in 2 Samuel chapter 11 today as we continue to look at the life of David. So if you want to grab your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there are some on the ends of the rows in baskets underneath seats. And I'm sure a friendly person would be glad to pass one to you. If you do not own a Bible, then feel free to take that one home with you. We'd love to give that to you as a gift. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, if you're a Bible collector, then you may not have ours. You have to leave that here. But if you do not own a Bible, then we'll gladly give you that as a gift. So a little bit of a reset on David and where we've been so far. He's a massive figure in the Bible, an example of faith. So far we've talked about his origin story, how he is the youngest of eight sons. He is the runt of the litter, and God appointed him to be the future king of Israel. Up until that point, he had spent all of his life in the pasture with sheep tending to his father's flocks. But God says, this is my guy, this is who I want to be the king. God begins to raise him up. It turns out that David's time in the pasture was preparation for what he would go through as king. Uh, soon, he would stand in front of Goliath as the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. David would fight Goliath and win. He gets elevated to this, uh, to this prominency. He becomes revered by the crowds. Then a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at David's friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne, but Jonathan stepped out of his way uh, because he saw what God was doing through his his friend David. And uh, personally, I will admit that I did cry when we sang, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So you can judge me if you want to. And then we looked at what God did through David's relationship with Saul. Saul was the current king who was set out to kill David, tried in all sorts of different ways, how David refused to take matters into his own hands, but trusted God even with his life on the line. And in all of this, we've seen God's hand at work in David's life, how God raises David up to, this, uh, to prominence. He's consistently trusting God's power and God's sufficiency in the face of all odds and all of these stories and then even more are examples of why David shines so brightly over the pages of Scripture. He is an example of a posture of trust and reliance on the faithfulness of God. God goes so far as to call him a man after my own heart. All of these things are wonderful and good in the life of David. Today, we are going to get introduced to one of the darkest moments of David's life, to a a total catastrophe. Um, There are some times on Sundays where... We look in Scripture, and because of what the Bible says in the particular passage that we are looking at, we all talk and we leave smiling and encouraged, joy filling our hearts, gladness on our faces. Today will not be one of those days. Today hits like a ton of bricks. It is an absolute catastrophe that David steps into, shipwrecks his life. It is heavy, beginning to end. And so will the feeling in the room be. So you have been warned. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we will pick it up. We will look at one of the lowest moments in David's life. And what we'll try to do is take two of the main characters in this story and then just draw out some conclusions that we can think about and pray about. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle, so they had seasons for war, like we you know, have football season, basketball season, they have war season. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This is where the ominous music would be playing in the background. So kings, in this time, they would lead their armies in battle. They'd go fight with them. David's kingdom is currently at war with the Ammonites, but David isn't fighting with them as he should be. This is strange because up until this point, David's claim to fame has in part been how good of a warrior he is. It starts with him killing Goliath, and he proceeds to to engage in some other battles. And also at this point, he's always been right where he should be, faithful to God in the midst of whatever the circumstances were. But here... It says that David's back at the palace, that he sends his army, the men who pledged their lives to him, he sends them away without his leadership, without his skill, without his help. Let me just real quick break something down for you, and some of you will be familiar with this. These are are categories that we've used before to help paint a picture for biblical masculinity. We're doing some work right now with a class that we're preparing to roll out in the spring, Let me Just really quickly, let me give you three words that I think help capture some categories for what it means to be masculine. Those words are protect, provide, and pursue. And we're obviously not going to dive into these all that heavy, and it's not even the point of the sermon. I just want you to see something here. These are fairly easy to to follow. Protect, meaning that a masculine man, a man who's stepping into what it means to be masculine, is going to look to protect those around him. That if danger is threatening the people around you, They have to go through you first. That's the idea. Provide, also simple. means that as men, we work hard to make sure that the people God's put around us are taken care of. If someone around me is hungry, it is my job to fix it. That's part of what it means to be masculine. And then men pursue. It's a posture of engagement that we reject apathy and disengagement. And when we see a problem, we run towards it, not away from it. And so first, even just with that brief summary... How great would the world be if all men stepped into those categories and lived up to those definitions of what it means to be masculine? And second, in just one verse, we see that David is now rejecting all of these, all three of them, that he's not protecting his men and his people by fighting their enemies. He's not providing safety and covering for his kingdom. He's not pursuing problems. He's hanging back to let other people handle problems. So what we have here is a rejection of biblical masculinity. He's disengaged. He's turned off to his purpose as a man. And as many of you are familiar, things begin to go very badly, very quickly. When you find a man who has disconnected from his purpose in the world. And sure enough, that's what happens here with David. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So he is, his men are all fighting. He's on the couch watching Netflix. And was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. I don't know how many of you grew up around church. I learned something that I always thought was very cheesy growing up in church. It's a saying that goes like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and will hurt others along the way. It rhymes, so you know it's true. (laughs) I always thought that was a bit lame. What we're about to see is that it's exactly true, and this story is a horrifying example of it, that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and will hurt others along the way. David sees a woman who we will find out is named Bathsheba, inquires about her. Keep reading in verse 3. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? One of the things at the root of most sin is objectification, turning people into objects to be used for our benefit. In fact, even most crimes begin with dehumanizing others. This is how you end up with Nazi Germany or the slave trade or sex trafficking. You first begin to see other people as less than human. And here we have this unnamed person included by the author subtly hinting at, this is not some object, this is Bathsheba. She's She's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. This is a person, not an object. She exists in relationships with others. She's loved and valued by others. She has a life and a story and a personality. She's a human person in the image of God. Not an object for you to use. But David dismisses that fact. Dismisses the reality that he's dealing with a real person with real relationships. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. <clears throat> she came to him and he lay with her. And she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. So, I want to explain and show you something that you might not have heard before. I want to show you my work first so that you know that I'm not just making something up. So, let me clarify a few things here so that I can make a point. First, just by way of clarity. When it says that Bathsheba was purifying herself from her uncleanness, that means uh, her bathing here is a ritual washing after her period. It's a symbolic ceremonial bathing in line with cultural custom and Leviticus chapter 15. So in other words, she's obeying God. That's what she's doing. Second, the text says that David sees her from his roof. It doesn't say where Bathsheba was located. There's no indication that she is somewhere that she shouldn't be. And in fact, the person we're told who is not where they should be is David. He should be off at war. So while she is fulfilling her God-given responsibilities, he is abdicating his. In other words, she is not doing something to get attention. She's not doing something abnormal or unusual. She's not somewhere that she shouldn't be showing off or looking for attention. Third, in the next chapter... David is going to be confronted about all of this, what's about to happen, and what, is already, what we already read. And in the illustration used in that confrontation, Bathsheba is going to be compared to an innocent lamb. And then at no point in the entire narrative is any fault actually laid upon her. And then finally, fourth, it says that David sent messengers or soldiers who took her. He says he saw her, took her Laid with her. Those are the verbs. Saw, took, laid with. In Genesis chapter 34, when that same verb structure is used, saw, took, laid with, it's used when a man named Shechem rapes a woman named Dinah. It says he takes her, and he just personally, physically takes her. Shechem does. While here in this story, David uses his kingly authority to send armed soldiers to take her and bring her to the palace bedroom. In other words... Bathsheba does not have a choice here. This is the king. Her thoughts and feelings are irrelevant. Her consent is is, is not simply not given. It isn't even considered relevant. Her thoughts and feelings on the matter are irrelevant. In a kingdom, whatever the king says or does, goes. That's how it works. She is unconsidered. Doesn't matter what she thinks. Doesn't matter what she wants. The king has said, soldiers show up. She has no option. She must. She could get her head chopped off, or she can go with them. That's it. So in light of all of this, what's actually happening here is that Bathsheba is a victim. And as we'll see as we continue to read, not only is her body taken, she will also lose her husband. She will eventually lose her home, and she will lose her baby She's a victim who suffers because of David's sin. So I I do not believe that the best term to describe this interaction is adultery. It is that, but it is more than that. This is actually a case of sexual assault. Or if we want to use a more modern term, this could be called a power rape. She does not have a choice. She's unable to give consent. It's not even considered. Bathsheba is a victim here. Verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Remember, Joab is now the leader of the army that he sent out while David hung back. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. David's looking for a cover-up possibility here. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Then Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So he tries to get Uriah to go home with his wife, hoping that when he's there, he'll sleep with her. He'll eventually think that the baby is his. Crisis averted. This is, it's all covered up and nobody needs to find out. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David's plan doesn't work because Uriah is too honorable. He actually says he sleeps outside the king's palace and he says it's because his fellow soldiers don't get to go home. They're out sleeping in the fields. They're fighting battles. They're protecting everyone out there. He says, how could I enjoy what they cannot currently enjoy? And this is a twist because most of David's life so far, David has been the one who's acting faithfully, even when it costs him. And now the faithfulness of someone else is keeping David from being able to cover up the worst thing that he's ever done. So that was plan A, cover up plan A. Didn't work. So David moves on to plan B. Verse 12. And David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So plan B, Uriah first, won't go home, won't sleep with his wife sober. Maybe he will if he's drunk. So David invites him over for a little dinner party, has some friends over, gets him wasted. Uriah still doesn't go down to his house. So David is at a point now where drunk Uriah is more righteous than sober David. So what started with David simply not being where God wanted him to be, not doing what God had called him to do, and now we're we're spiraling out of control. He's getting more and more desperate, willing to take it further. Here's plan C, cover up plan C, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down, and die. The king writes this message to the army commander. He seals it where Uriah can't read it, and Uriah literally carries his own death sentence back to war, hands it to his supervisor, Joab. Next thing you know, verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. So David has him killed. And in fact, Uriah isn't the only one that dies. Because of this cover-up attempt, Joab had to do something unwise from a military perspective. And so now other people are getting killed too. So the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the psalmist, is now a sexual predator and a murderer. David's power gets corrupted and abused, and instead of using his power to protect and provide like he's called, he sees this opportunity to use his power to take, to grab something that isn't his, but that he wants anyway. And So instead of using his authority to bless, he uses it to harm. Instead of using his power to point outward and protect and bring flourishing to others, he takes that power and uses it for himself. And heartbreakingly, it takes the form of forcing a woman who's missing her husband to have sex with him and then using his power to cover it up, getting someone murdered, believing he's going to get away with it. If, you, if you've ever been in a situation where someone you really, really looked up to, someone who was in some position of spiritual authority, just completely fails and you're crushed by it. You're getting the feel for the picture here. This was supposed to be God's... Guy. He was the king. He's the man after God's own heart. And he just completely falls apart. Jump down to the end of the chapter just to finish this part of the story. Verses uh, 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and will hurt others along the way. A gripping picture this story provides of a, of a king's apathy, And indifference and rejection of purpose becoming temptation, which becomes covetousness, which becomes sexual assault, which becomes murder of both an innocent, honorable man and other people who are caught in the crossfire. Here's what I want to do. I just want to draw out some conclusions from two of the main characters in the story. And First, let's start with David. So up to this point, David is the hero. I mean, until this, he almost always does the right thing, the God-honoring thing. He's an extreme example of faith and humility and love and strength of character. He's He's the best of us. He's God's guy. He's the king that God appointed, a man after God's own heart. That's what makes this situation so horrifying because this is what sin can do to us, to the best of us. If I read this story and I think Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that David did that. I would never do that. Then I completely missed what the Bible is trying to show me here. The point is that David is better than me, and he did it. He's a better person than I am. That's the whole point of his narrative up until now. It's not even close. Like If I show up and we're at war with the Philistines... And giant, awesome fighter Goliath is standing there in one-on-one representative battle. I'm not fighting him. I'm not fighting him. I will roll up, and he's taunting everybody, and I'm going to say, Hey, y'all are the soldiers. Somebody better step up. Somebody's got to do something. It ain't going to be me, though. If I'm in a cave secretly hiding behind King Saul, the man who's been trying to kill me and is ruining my life for years, and I have a chance to secretly sneak up behind him, he's catching a shiv in the back. Judge me if you want. I'm sneaking right up. Ka-ka-ka-ka-ka. That's what you get. That's what you get. David says, you know what? You know what? I'm, I'm not going to do this. It wouldn't be right in God's eyes. I'm going to trust God to make right this situation. And if I continue to suffer and struggle in the meantime, God is the one who will set this right. And I'm going to act by faith. He's way better than we are. That's the whole point. He's the best of us. That's, that's, the whole, that's what we're trying to learn. So how much in danger are we then? Don't read this and think, how could David? That's so despicable, I would never. No, we have the same disease as him. This is what sin can do to a person. This is how much danger we're in. And here's, a, here's an insight from the story on how it works. It always starts small. You make a thousand decisions before you make the one decision that ruins everything. Everybody thinks people blow up their lives out of nowhere. It's not how it works. You make a thousand decisions along the way before you make the one decision that blows everything up. We go prayerless for weeks. We refuse to draw near to God for weeks. We refuse to repent of sin in our lives for weeks and months. We do not talk to a trusted Christian friend about how we're struggling and how we need prayer and how we need help. And we conceal and we make a thousand decisions in a row that lead to the one that sets a bomb off. Uh, This was years ago. We had a a woman in our church who decided she was done. She was married, had kids, decided that she was done with all of it. She wanted to go uh, live somewhere else with someone else. She actually said she did not want to interact with her children again you can imagine having that conversation with her kids about their mom saying she doesn't want to see you again. We finally had a chance to talk to her and interact with her, and and I just said, when's the last time that you prayed? And she said, been years since I prayed. She said, at this point, I'm not even sure if I believe that God exists. If he does, I don't care what he thinks about what I'm doing. So I said, who who, what, what Christian friend have you talked to along the way about how you were struggling and what your doubts were and what your problems were that, that could pray for you and that could check in on you? And she said, I've never really told anybody. She didn't make one decision to blow up her life. She made a thousand decisions that all led to one decision. Most of us in the room right now are not making the one decision that could ruin our lives. But many of us are making one of the thousand decisions that lead us in that direction. Maybe a few of us are about to make the one decision. And to you, I would say, don't do it. It is not worth it. But for most of us, we're making everyday, regular, normal decisions that add up over time to move us in the direction where at some point, we blow everything up. Some of you are probably thinking right now, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do something that totally ruins my life. I just have more sense and more self-control than that. So a thousand decisions don't really matter that much. I'm just never going to get there. And maybe, I mean, you might be right. My problem with that would be uh, the goal in life is not simply to avoid ruining your life. (laughs) The goal in life is to walk with God and enjoy Him forever. The biggest problem that could befall you is not that you ruin your life. The biggest problem would be that you do not know God now or for eternity. That's the biggest threat to your life. Our goal is to know God and enjoy Him forever. Don't settle for less than that. So I don't know exactly where any of that needs to fit in your life. I'll just add that no one has ever ruined their life by obeying God one day at a time. Never happened. You obey God one day at a time and you are free you're free. While we're talking about David, it would just be pastoral negligence if I didn't at least talk about uh, sexual sin, even just for a couple minutes here. Um, we've done a whole sermon series on all this, and so I'm not going to be able to cover all of our teaching. But I just want to talk about a couple things that, that come to mind and, and are on my heart about it. So throughout history, Sexual sin has always been a way in which people rebel against God. It's always a temptation, and there's always, there's always a struggle there. But today, it gets pushed on us in ways that God's people, hundreds of years ago, could not have even imagined. In the book of Proverbs, which was written by one of David's sons named Solomon, he writes these fatherly words of wisdom to his son, And he says to stay far away from the proverbial immoral woman. She's just representative of temptation to sexual sin. Solomon says don't go near her street. Don't go down her path. Just steer clear. Don't make things more difficult for yourself. It's not worth it. Just steer clear of this proverbial means of sexual sin. I just think about even in my life. When I was growing up. If I wanted to look at porn, I had to either go buy a magazine, like a physical magazine, or a VHS tape. And those were the things that used to show movies. They were like little rectangular boxes. And they would show movies before DVDs were were out and before streaming came along. And that was it. That was my access. And I just think about now, not even that far into the future we literally have access to every sex act imaginable through our phones. More hours than anyone could ever watch in a hundred lifetimes. So in other words, we've taken the immoral woman and we've put her in our pocket. So I think about, I've got three kids, my oldest is seven, we're not quite here yet. This is a conversation we're starting to have with parents in our church. That in our state, someone can drive when they are 15. We believe they can be trusted with 2,000 pounds of steel going 70 miles an hour. That person can't drink alcohol until they're 21. There's a reason for that. We think that there are potential dangers and threats and temptations that come with alcohol that they would not be ready for. Now, they're trustworthy with 2,000-pound missile going down the road, but there's an extra danger associated with alcohol. Potential problems come with it, and it requires someone to have the internal self-control to be able to handle themselves with those freedoms. So inside of that rubric, at what point... Does someone become completely able to handle the temptation and the freedom of having every single sex act imaginable visible in their own pocket? My daughter is seven years old and she has friends who have smartphones. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I think that's incredibly foolish. Incredibly foolish. There's a dad I was talking to a few weeks ago. His son plays basketball on a local high school team. His son is uh, 14 years old. He said, my son's the only believer on his team, and his goal is when they go on an away game for him to be the only one on the bus who's not looking at porn while they travel to and from that game. He said, everyone else on the bus will be watching porn. He's the only one that may or may not be because he's a believer. He's just trying to make it through those trips. That's where we're at. You don't have to venture to the immoral woman's house anymore or the immoral man's house anymore because they have ventured to ours. And our access is historically unimaginable. And then adding fuel to the fire is the false secular narrative that we're just animals with time and chance on our side. And when an animal wants to have sex, the animal has sex. And then we're surprised when we've got sexual addiction and rape culture as though we don't get the connection. And so many of us are caught up in this in one degree or another. That's David. second character I want to talk about is Bathsheba. In this story, she suffers as a choiceless, voiceless victim because of someone more powerful than her. Statistically, One out of every four females and one out of every six males will be sexually abused in their lifetime in our country. One out of every four females, one out of every six males will be sexually abused. This is rampant. And what is crystal clear through our ministry as a church, both our recovery ministry and then just for me being a pastor and meeting with so many people is that if you want to see how damaging sin is, all you need to do is find that group of people. There's something uniquely devastating about another person forcefully taking control over your body and doing with it what they want to do. It is a haunting, dehumanizing sin to be committed against you. And someone who's been through this has their sense of bodily autonomy taken from them, their sense of control ripped away. Sometimes their self-image due to the fact that they were treated treated like an object. All too often, either, either consciously or subconsciously, these questions begin to roll through people's mind, like, what did I do to cause this to happen to me. Well, maybe I shouldn't have gone there. Maybe I shouldn't have warned that. Maybe I shouldn't have said this. What's wrong with me that this happened to me? And it's just devastating. There's this swirl of thoughts and ideas that are always running through your mind and so much pain, and you just want the pain to go away. So many tragic stories have their origins in sexual abuse. From drug and alcohol abuse stories, self-injury, depression, anxiety, paranoia, sexual addiction, so much of it begins with sexual abuse. Because victims so badly want some amount of control, so badly want a positive body image, and it feels like all that's just been torn away. And you're just grabbing at anything that could be a substitute savior. Looking for some relief as you try to put your life back together. Uh, I was even remembering this week, I read a while ago was a, uh, an interview by Howard Stern. He used to be a, a TV and radio personality, and uh, sometimes he would interview porn stars. And he said that when he interviews porn stars, he will just start the interview Hey, so tell me about your abuse, what happened? because he just knows you are doing this because you have abuse in your background. Your sense of control over your own body has been taken from you, and now you see yourself as an object to be used for other people's gratification, and you thought, at least I could make some money off of it. He just says there's there's a one-to-one connection. Just anything, anything to bring a sense of control and stability So we got two characters. we got David, who does something horrible that I'm sure he never thought he would do. Left with questions like, and we find out later he's going to be racked with guilt and shame over this. That's, that's for next week. But he's left with questions like, how in the world did I go so far with this? Can I ever be forgiven? What hope do I have? And we've got Bathsheba, who has something awful done to her something that I'm sure she never dreamed would happen. And like many victims, she's left with questions like, where do I go now? How do I, how do I rid myself of this shame and this disgrace? How do I numb myself from all the pain that I feel? And what I know about our church is that uh, we have some Davids. Some of us are Davids. And to a certain degree, we're all David because we've all sinned and separated ourselves from God. Some of us have done so in especially hurtful ways and caused damage that we couldn't have dreamed of. And in our church, we have some Bathshebas. And again, all of us are Bathsheba in some ways because we've all been sinned against by others and experienced the pain that comes with it. But, but many of us have been especially hurt by the sin of others, especially the sexual sin of others. We never dreamed it would be part of our story, but, but here we are. And then to make it even more complicated, some of us would be able to identify with both. Because we've been hurt, we've been sinned against. So we're like Bathsheba in a way, but also we take that pain and we turn it into other ways that we hurt other people. No matter which you identify with, the good news is that Jesus comes for both and actually comes from both. Jesus is actually born through David's lineage. And in Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew, is the last time that Bathsheba is mentioned. The final word on Bathsheba is not what happens to her here. The final word is that she goes on to become one of the mothers of Jesus. Up until this point, David seemed like the perfect king until suddenly he wasn't at all. And through this, we learned that David was not the king that we needed. We need another king. We need a better king. We need a king who dies for, our pe- for his people instead of having his people die for him. And it might not, there's a cultural distance here, and so it may not resonate with us the way that it would have for an ancient audience, but, but the last mention of Bathsheba is that God picks her to be one of the mothers of Jesus. That When he looks on the earth and picks an earthly lineage for Jesus, he says, her, the one who had so much taken from her, would have meant the world. That God saw her pain and loss and responded by lifting her head in dignity and honor. So for, for my Davids in the room, the good news is that just like David, our sin doesn't get the final word. Jesus does. And that our failure doesn't get the last word in our lives. Jesus does. And that our sin, including our sexual sin can be forgiven and cleansed and redeemed by Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then your truest identity is not porn addict, it's not adulterer, it's not even predator. But like David, the last word on us can be forgiven, redeemed, covered completely in the substitutionary righteousness of Jesus, the only unfailing king. And for those of us who would most identify with Bathsheba, We need to know that just like God saw what David had done and he was displeased, that God has seen what has happened to you and he hates it. And that what has been done to you will be paid for either by the death of Jesus on the cross or by the person who did it in eternity in hell. Those are the options that God dispenses justice perfectly and that sin is always paid for. And I want you to know that God intends to lift your head as well, to bring healing and honor and restoration, to bring freedom from anxiety and fear, to to restore to you a sense of wholeness and a sense of healthy control and autonomy and self-will in your life, to help you see that you are not damaged goods, but that you are a royal son or daughter of the king of the universe. And there's so much work to be done to get there. But that's the end. That's the aim. That's the goal. That someone else's sin against you does not get the final word. Jesus does. And That he intends to honor and restore what's been taken from you. For all of us, sin does not get the final word in our lives. That's what we're doing here. That's why I'm here. I need, I need something other than my sin and the sin that's been committed against me to have the most power in my life. I need somewhere to turn for hope beyond what I can do and beyond what other people can do to me. That's what this is about. I don't know what you thought we were doing here. We're here because we have hope in Jesus that's a greater power than our sin and the sins of other people in our lives. That's what we're doing. So I just want to let it be heavy today. I want us to have some time to think and cry and pray and respond and react. Um, we're going to have people who are up front who would love to pray for you. So if you would be willing to, to come up, we'd love to pray for you. We'd be honored if you would let us pray for you. Maybe you don't have exactly the words to even pray. Let, let someone pray for you. Some of you, as I was talking, you had someone come to mind. Someone just came to mind. Once you consider that, God prompting you to pray for them. So maybe for you, you're not praying for you. During our time of response today, you're gonna pray for them and just ask God to bless them and be near to them and minister and work in their life. And no matter where we are or however this hits us, the invitation for all of us is to come to the table of a better king than David and to feast on the body and blood of Jesus, crucified and shed, because all of us need a better king than David was. And Jesus is that king. So we're gonna have people come up Be ready to pray. We've got communion stations that are scattered around the room. I'd love to to transition for us and lead us in prayer. And we'll just have some time to respond, to think, pray, sing, take communion. So let me just pray. God, I know that there are so many different stories and circumstances and experiences and situations that are represented in the room, and I know for some of us, just bringing up this topic is so painful, I know so many of us are caught up in sexual sin, I know so many of us have been hurt by the sins of others. Jesus, thank you that you are the better king that we need, that you use your power to serve. Jesus, thank you that you can relate to us, that you know what it is like to be a victim because you who knew no sin became sin, that you were stripped naked and nailed to a cross so that we could be made whole, that you are our God who can look at us and say, I know what it's like. would you meet us here as we respond and as we reflect? God, help help us to pray when we even don't know what words to pray. God, would you give um, some people courage to just come and ask for prayer and let someone else pray over them? God, for some of us, we're going to need to tell someone that we trust some things that have been done to us or some things that we have done and we've never told anybody, and it's going to take so much courage, but it's the first step towards healing and freedom and growth is to come into the light. And so would you just empower us and embolden us and give us courage, strengthen us, that we could begin to move forward and just take some steps towards growth and health. God, for all of us with the sins that we've committed and the, com- the sins that have been committed against us, Jesus, we come to you humbly and open-handed, trusting that what you've done on the cross is sufficient, both for our forgiveness and for our healing. We have nowhere else to turn. You are our hope. And so, God, we just ask all of this for your glory and our good. Amen.